0: This episode of Brave New World was first published on the Standard Daily Podcast on November 30th, 2023, as part of the Evening Standards Inquiry into the State of Free Speech. Philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris speaks to Evgeny Lebedev about topics including the battle against fake news, the future of media, and the importance of free ideas. It was one of the most listened to episodes of the year, so we're republishing it here as part of the Brave New World series for new audiences to enjoy. is free speech still important sam
1: uh well yeah i I think free speech is really the best error correcting mechanism we have both as individuals and as societies to keep our beliefs and our aspirations in line with reality the only thing that ensures that that eight billion strangers will be able to cooperate in an open-ended way is is the freedom to speak about what is true or seems true or seems plausible, or uh, and to keep that keep that conversation going with as little coercion as possible? F- free speech is the most important algorithm we have for for cooperation. I think we could probably distinguish what it is like in America from what it is like in, in the UK with respect to the variable of free speech. I mean, you know, as you know. You know we have laws protecting free speech that are foundational in a way that you don't. I mean, we have a constitution and a Bill of Rights and a First Amendment, and and freedom of speech and assembly are just really front and center to our conception of of, of just what our democracy is is founded upon. And my understanding is that it's it's not that way in the UK, and that there's some things that you have done over there that. I think we would find more or less unthinkable in America.
0: Well, when you say um, unthinkable things that in America would, would be thought of unthinkable, what, what do you t- what are you referring to in particular?
1: You know, you tweet something that is deemed to be hate speech, and the police show up at your house to arrest you for it. I mean, in America, you would ha- what hate speech would would not be saying something as anodyne as men and women are different or, you know, you, only women can get pregnant or whatever the, the example was that I'm, I believe I'm dimly remembering from, from recent British history. Where in your view
0: does free speech end and, and, and incitement to violence or hate speech begins? Or is that something that should be identified by law? I think I'm uncomfortable with
1: the concept of hate speech. I, I think we, I th- or I think it, it requires some... Uh, careful analysis. Richard Dawkins, who is, I believe,
0: well, definitely an old associate of yours, has written a brilliant piece for for our campaign. It was on the front page of, of the Evening Standard, and one of the very interesting points he raised, and I know you speak a lot about, it, he said that what what is deemed these days as hateful or violent has been warped by oversensitive
1: individuals and audiences. I'm I'm somewhat troubled by the the, the feeling that that i'm inclined to make this up as we go along, because you know recent events in the news have have pushed my my intuitions around a little bit uh, for instance I, I you know I view your situation in the u k where you have hundreds of thousands of people coming into the streets more or less in support of Hamas, right well you know, perhaps in many cases not explicitly so, but essentially advocating with a clear conscience for the intentional murder of of civilians you know not as not as collateral damage while while waging war but you know murdering you know families in their beds there's something about that that is so corrosive socially and is and presents such an obvious danger to an open society the clearest case you have muslims chanting for you know in support of sharia law and, and jihadism you know we don't even have to take the current case we can go we can go back to the the famous cartoon controversy of of uh, your um where you have people you know holding placards saying you know behead those who insult the prophet you know we can call that hate speech or we can call it just a a sincere expression of religious beliefs just how much of that should we tolerate and when what should our tolerance look like i mean on some level this, this is a, a line that, you know, Salman Rushdie and I once gave Ayon Hirsi Ali when we wrote a, an op-ed about her, I think in the Los Angeles Times. We wrote that, the, you know, tolerance of intolerance is cowardice, right? Now, there, there's a certain amount of tolerance of intolerance that we're just going to have to be comfortable with in order to defend you know, the, the freedom of speech as we're currently discuss, describing it. But- at a certain point, it tips over into becoming a genuine threat to the the norms of the you know the, the open society. But I, I'm pretty sure I don't want American cities to look like London has looked in recent weeks, right? I just don't, I don't want that many people agreeing to march in support of of uh, jihad. Uh, um, so. You can, I mean, you can obviously you can argue against these opinions, and and you know, and and that's the the proper exercise of one's own free speech. I'm prepared to tend to fall on the American side of it, you know, by default, which is we got it. We just it doesn't matter how despicable the ideas are, there should be no law against saying them. But if you're if you're saying them en masse in the middle of a city and bringing that city to a standstill. Because of your, you know, freedom of assembly. At some, at some point, I, I worry that we, you know, we need we need some we need some law that is preventing the erosion of our liberty just to live normal lives in an open society. And I, and it, it seems to get crossed for me when uh, you have angry mobs stopping the the, the work of a. Of, of a city for the day,
0: there was no no such protests in the states because there are laws that that would stop them or because there's just no such sentiment for those kind of protests that London had. Would they be deemed as breaking the law in
1: america? no, so so I think there's much more tolerance for extreme speech in America. So it is, a, I think it is a bit of a double standard that we see in, in the UK, the, those instances of, of hate speech not being prosecuted. And yet, you know, you can get a knock on the door if you say something about, you know, biological sex. I think I'm more, I'm more comfortable with the American standard, but the American standard has its limits. And I do think, again, it is kind of a happy accident that there's less of that sentiment in America. There's been less Immigration from the specific communities and demographics that would would share that sentiment. You know, it's not this, it's not that it doesn't exist here, but it's it's just not. You know, you're not going to get three hundred thousand people in Los Angeles essentially supporting jihadism, right? And I I say that with some caveats. Obviously, not everyone in those crowds knows exactly what they're supporting, and you know that when they're chanting. You know, from the river to the sea, they might not know exactly what river and what sea, et cetera. But there's much, there is much more support in Western Europe, in the capitals of Western Europe, because it's been just as far as immigration, it's been a different story in recent decades. I've, I've I've heard your last two podcasts are making sense, and particularly
0: the one, which is the bright line between good good and evil, was more forthright than your usual, more nuanced, thoughtful podcasts. Did you feel your thinking has been somewhat changed since seventh of October.
1: My thinking, specifically about the problem of anti-Semitism, has been has been changed a little bit. I mean, it's, it's more of a problem than I realized. But in terms of my 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 fundamental view of it, that hasn't changed. It's just it's just descriptively, I I, I wasn't aware of what public sentiment was beneath the surface until October 8th, really. Um, I mean, I could have anticipated some of the confusion on the left around this, but uh, I just, just how widespread it would be and the, and the nature of, of it, you know, especially on, you know, college campuses in, in America, you know, that, that part surprised me. It had to be linked to a, it, it, it to the larger problem, which is jihadism in my view, not not a, not semitism It's certainly it's certainly not a local problem in, in between israel and the palestinians it's much more of a global problem this is not speaking about free speech generically this is speaking about the current problem with with jihadism and and islamism specifically but it just it it's almost never said uh, and yet it's important to say that that I mean, we're living in a world that has been essentially rigged to explode on the basis of specific religious symbols, right? And it's been rigged to explode on this basis by, by only one community, right? And, and, and so the, this is, I'm referring to the conversation I, I had with Yval where I, I asked him to imagine what would happen if Israel decided in their war in Gaza to just change tactics and, and say, listen, we're, we're so sick of the collateral damage. We really don't want to kill any more of your children. We recognize how untenable all this war fighting is. You know, we just we put the, the sanctity of human life above everything else. Uh, we have this building, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that you claim to care a lot about. You know, give us our hostages back in forty-eight hours, or we're going to tear it down. Right? What would happen there? Well, what would happen? I think everyone, if you if you spend thirty seconds thinking about it on the basis of recent history, what would happen is the entire world would be would be in disarray. As a result, as a result of the Muslim response to this religious symbol being not, not even desecrated. I mean, just the, just the threat to it, right? Just the threat to tear down the Al-Aqsa Mosque, we could expect, would produce demonstrations and uprisings in 100 countries, right? It would be absolute chaos. So what does it mean... That we live in such a world. I mean, how, how is this status quo remotely tenable? This is a hostage crisis. The entire world is being held hostage by the religious fanaticism of one community, right? It's just a building. Right? It's just a building, and yet we we are being told explicitly and implicitly by the you know by the you know manifest behavior and and statements of, of millions of people that tearing down this building would be much worse than any number of innocent lives being lost in, you know, by collateral damage or even on purpose. I would argue that they could kill literally everyone in Gaza tomorrow and it would produce less of a response than, de- than demolishing that building, right? And that is morally insane, right? And it's unacceptable. And there's no, there can be no stable cooperation in open societies with people who feel that way, right? So just how many people feel that way? And um, how do we change their minds, right? How do we win a war of ideas with these religious maniacs? And failing that, how do we not let more of those people into our societies? So this comes back to the difference between Europe and America. So I I don't know. Do you know Douglas Murray? He's I mean I, I'm I greatly admire Douglas. He's a friend. But he's you know he's now apt to say things about what should be done in the UK in response to certain types of speech of this sort we've been talking about that you know we really couldn't contemplate in America, right? I mean so he he you know in response to the those recent protests in London, he's now saying that he thinks you know Hamas supporters should be stri- stripped of their citizenship and and you know, sent to Gaza, right? Or just, just ejected from the UK. I mean, well, why, why, why should we tolerate these people in our society? If you're a, a supporter of Hamas, we, know, we already know everything we need to know about you. But in an American context, that is more or less unthinkable. Do you think it's potentially a good idea? Well, I think the, the reverse is a good idea, which is to acknowledge that we don't want more of those people in our country. We certainly don't want to knowingly import more jihadists into our open societies. But I've gone through a,
0: a journey of similar thoughts on, on Islam and, and jihad, and uh, particularly because I'm Russian and I've you know, saw the, the Chechen atrocities and beginning of mm-hmm. – you know, che- Chechnya really was the first – Expression of proper terrorism in in kind of European soil, mm-hmm. or Islamic terrorism in the in the early nineties, obviously nine eleven and everything that's happened since, the Arab Spring, and I have very very strong feelings about that. But I do feel that the Saudi regime has a lot to be thanked for, and that's never really been acknowledged.
1: No, I think I mean they have a lot to answer for in in terms of how they exported extremism generally to uh, mosques outside of the kingdom. And I, I think insofar as they've changed their policy there, that, that's incredibly helpful. All of this is relevant to the free speech issue just because it is a corner condition where my intuitions about tolerating more or less all speech become slightly uh, hard to defend, right? Like there's, there's a limit. I would just say there's there's a limit, and it's hard to specify what that limit is. I'm much more comfortable with the American bias than the British one with respect to just how just the the government's role in regulating speech. Now, I I think things change when you talk about what should publishers and social media platforms be able to do. I think uh, any of these institutions should be able to have more or less any terms of service or or. Editorial policy they want, right? So I think you should be able to be a social media platform that doesn't tolerate, you know, Nazis or anti-Semitism or Islamism or you know, fat shaming or anything else you you don't want to tolerate, right? And you could be as extreme in your in your political correctness as you want to be, and then people could decide, well, this platform is now incredibly boring, and we don't we we want to. Start another platform or or migrate to another platform I think that's I think that's fine. If you're Harvard, for instance, and you see a demonstration of students that you find odious and indefensible, you know yes, they have a in, in an American context, they have the First Amendment right to have as crazy a po- political opinion as they can possibly articulate, but if you're Harvard, I think you could say. We didn't spend the last 300 years developing our brand so that you could tarnish it with your moronic support for Hamas. So we're kicking you out of school because, you know, you're a dangerous imbecile. Uh, You have, you're perfectly free to be an imbecile elsewhere. We don't think you should be in jail for it. We just don't want you at Harvard anymore. Right. That I, th- I think Harvard should be free to do that, and I think they should have done that, frankly, for, with many of these kids. For me, that's a fairly bright line. I think private ins- institutions should be free to have more or less any editorial policy they want.
0: But what would you say that there were a couple of people, you know, on the flip side of the protests, on the opposite side of the spectrum protests in London, there were a couple of people quite prominently sacked for expressing opinions of support for ceasefire, for example. Famously, the editor of Art Forum magazine was fired for calling for a ceasefire and how, how do you feel about that
1: i mean these are these are choices that that private institutions mm-hmm. need to make and i I think it's it, it's completely valid to say listen we we want we, we want our our policy to to simply be identical to the the laws of the land, right so if it's legal speech we're going to tolerate it, right? And so that, that's, that's a coherent policy. It's not the policy I would adopt for any organization of mine. In, Amer- in the American context, my, view, my um, hiring practices are almost certainly illegal, right? Like I've never, had, I've never explicitly asked somebody, you know, what are your religious beliefs before I hire you? But it is also true that there's just no way I'm hiring somebody who's a... a a dogmatic member of yeah. any religious community, bec- given given the nature of my my business, um, you know. It's so, and I, I think I should be free. I don't think there should be a law against me not hiring religious yeah, fundamentalists, no. and there is in the U.S. In fact, there is, um, and I could be sued um, if it were ever demonstrated that I I did such a thing. Okay, well, that's for a private
0: individual or or a company, even as vast as influential as X. But would you think calling for a ceasefire is is comparable to supporting jihad? And there were a number of individuals who were sacked from political positions in in the UK for for doing that on both sides.
1: Again, I don't know the specific details there, but um, if in fact they were merely calling for a a ceasefire, I mean, that that opinion is attached to, I I would imagine, a... some degree of moral confusion or what I would deem moral confusion in, in the present case. So there's, there's probably something to criticize there, but it would be surprising. And I think very hard to defend firing someone merely for expressing that opinion. I mean, that seems very much within the bounds of, of normal, you know, political disagreement. And I, I would, it just, it would matter to me what it was attached to. I mean, if it, atta- if it, if it's attached to a complete inability to distinguish what Hamas did on October 7th from what every democratic society has done when waging war, i.e. produce some degree of collateral damage. Well, then that's just that may be someone you don't want to have in a position of responsibility to to make policies and and make laws. And, you know, on, on its face, it's very easy to see how how most people calling for a ceasefire think they're just articulating a commitment to minimizing death and, and, and unnecessary misery uh which you know which taken taken in that way it's 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 commendable to want that you know you just you're just wanting to you know not have more non-combatants die I mean, who doesn't want that you've been very openly critical
0: of trump on many many mm-hmm. occasions and it seems like at the moment there's according to polls more than half of america's electorate are supporting trump so even though it's not mm-hmm. directly free speech but it is free expression but how do you feel that such a vast number of people have the right to elect him
1: it's it's not i don't know what the alternative to democracy is that we would want to endorse this is the flaw in one of several flaws in democracy that you can get a majority of people to um want a you know want a political outcome that is uh, that is in my view uh highly undesirable right i mean populism is a problem a a a hatred of quote elites is a problem because it is it it is tantamount to a hatred of of real expertise and real knowledge and a, you know a, a real understanding of what's happening in the world and you know a real understanding of ri- of civilizational risk right so we we don't tend to to put the rest of our worldview to a plebiscite, right? We don't we don't do science by by you know mere you know democratic consensus, and we don't do ethics that way, really. And we don't, but we do politics that way. And occasionally, it I think you you can have a, a bad outcome because you can convince you know fifty one percent of people of the unbelievable. I mean there's 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 a flaw in in democracy in that you know everyone's opinion is equal essentially uh, everyone gets exactly one vote and yet we're we're being asked to decide uh, policies that uh, very few people are actually informed about I mean I don't I don't consider myself competent to make a long list of decisions that we as a civilization need to make it says it's not my opinion that we should care about when deciding what our, you know, policy on climate change should be. You know, I'll talk to a few experts, I'll read a few books, but my opinion is just derivative of, of what a, an expert consensus is on that topic because I'm really not an expert. That's a hell of
0: a lot more than most people would do.
1: Yeah. But, and, and I know that most people are doing nothing like that and they, and they still get to vote on or, or they vote for the person who, who's telling them what, he or she will do if, if you only give him or her the power to do it. Um, so there's something, you know, there's, there's so much noise in the system because most people are not very informed. Again, I don't, I don't know what the solution is beyond the, the, the intelligent exercise of the very freedom we're talking about, you know, the freedom to criticize bad ideas wherever we find them. Do you think we're living in an
0: era of the death of nuance? death of knowledge through the circumstances and the, the noise and the shouting and the grabbing of our, our attention and the inability to focus on anything.
1: Well, well paradoxically, it's, it's both. I mean, we're living through a period where knowledge has never been more available and, and there's never been less friction, friction in the system by which you would you know, confirm or disconfirm an opinion. I mean, just look at the you know recent advances in artificial intelligence. Now, there there are a few problems, like it occasionally hallucinates, et cetera. But I mean, we're we're at a time where it's just so easy to get information that would, if if you're going to use it intelligently, that would would disconfirm a, a lie or or support a, a, a entirely plausible thesis. I guess the question is how many people are actually using it intelligently. It's so easy. There's, it's, almost, it's almost unforgivable not to have the best available information on any given topic because I mean, you used to have to physically go to a library and search for articles. But
0: perhaps that made you value the knowledge more. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm being a bit idealistic.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, well, the, but the thing it's competing with is just the utter fragmentation of our attention by the rest of these, you know, the rest of yes. the information landscape. I mean, just the 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 fact that people don't even read articles anymore; they just read the titles of the articles that were you know, yeah. forwarded to them on social media, right? So it's it's uh, people imagine that they're they're they've been informed, and yet they're they're drinking from a fire hose of Misinformation and disinformation and half truth and and I so I I hold social media responsible for a lot of what ails us in this regard. It's just I I think it's done. It's it's a, it's a kind of insanity machine that we have built. You know, it's a it's a hallucination machine.
0: You you're a rare, rare breed of public intellectual, public personality who is very nuanced in your thinking. do, do you think? we 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 passed the point of no return where younger generations, future generations don't, won't even have the ability unless there's, of course, other ways of acquiring knowledge in the future in terms of the old school curiosity, desire to know things and actually just to to have informed
1: opinion about what you talk about. Well, I, I don't know if we've passed a point of no return or if, if the pendulum is going to swing back. I mean, I think there are some mm-hmm. signs that of it of it swinging back in that I think people have become more and more skeptical of what they're seeing on social media. As you know, I've just, I've stepped away from it entirely because it, I, I concluded that it was giving me a false picture of humanity. It was just, it was just, it was just corrosive of my view of, of the human beings. I was seeing the worst of people and that's just changed how I interact with information. I think for the better. What what was it doing to your brain? At the level of my mind, at the level to talk about it in terms of beliefs and and attitudes, I think it was it was giving me an unrealistic picture of just how many psychopaths there are in the world. What I felt I was seeing was a a situation where entirely normal people, people who, if I met them over dinner, would might even seem to me like good people were being encouraged to behave more or less like psychopaths given the incentives and reward structure of social media, right? I mean they were they were seeming to be talking to me, but they were really talking to their audience, their fans. And so what they were doing was totally performative and they were behaving without any kind of ethical compass with respect to, you know, intellectual honesty or or any other variable that one, one cares about when, when having a conversation with other people about hard topics. And so it just, it was deranging because I, I felt like in many cases, I actually knew some of these people. Like I had had dinner with some of them and I could see how they were behaving on social media. And it just, it was bring it was like a, a, a funhouse mirror that was just showing me nothing but grotesques. But what about you? What was it doing to you? You said it was making you—it was deranging you. So
0: presumably that's not a good thing. Presumably.
1: Well, yeah. Well, no. It was making—I think it was making me a a bit of a misanthrope, right? I was just—I was liking people less, thinking that people are worse than they are, thinking that there are more evil people than in fact exist—is just gives you a—it gives you a darker picture of humanity by definition. Um, So I decided to to throw that off. Also, it was just giving me a a sense that I always needed to respond to something out in the world, out in the world of social media, you know, throw in my two cents, you know, give my opinion in you know, 140 characters. Whereas once I close that channel, I no longer feel like the time course of my response has totally changed. Like rather than it being something I need to do, right now in the next five minutes, because this thing has just come across my, it's just invaded my brain, right? So now, now I have to decide whether I want to say something on my podcast about it. And that, that podcast, I might be recording, you know, five days from now. So, uh, and what's, what's interesting is that, you know, 95% of things don't survive the, the five-day test. The opportunity to put your foot in your mouth is greatly reduced, by not being on social media, it's powerfully addictive. I really do think it, I think the addiction model is appropriate to apply to it.
0: I, you know, just from my own amateur observation, our brains have not developed anyway nearly as fast as what, what's happened around us, and and these these pieces of glass that we carry around in our pockets are
1: uh, incredibly, incredibly addictive. I'm. Astounded at what a big change it was for me to delete my Twitter account, and it, it does come down to the phone in my pocket on, on on some level. I mean, it was it was a kind of slot machine for dopamine. I look at my phone a lot. I listen to a lot of audio on it. I I will read articles on it. But not having social media is a ninety five percent of the sort of addictive, compulsive. Uh, Quality of of having that piece of glass in your pocket that evaporated for me the moment I I got off Twitter. That's really interesting, really, because I've I I don't think I've ever been that addicted to
0: social media because I've relegated it to another phone, another device. But I do feel that there is a certain heightened sense of alertness, anxiety, ADHD that's promoted just by having the phone in my hand and. Uh, when I put it away, and I do do try not to look at it until 11 a.m., for example, I feel huge difference.
1: Yeah, it depends what you're doing because I mean this this could be a self serving thing to say, but because I produce a podcast and I produce a a meditation app, and so I'm I'm producing audio for the phone largely, but I do find consuming audio, consuming podcasts and audiobooks is a is a totally different use of the technology. I mean, I, I'll just. I'll put on a great audiobook and go for a three hour walk. And it's just, it's, it's completely different than, than the, the ordinary compulsive fragmentation of one's life with the phone. I mean, it's, it's the, it's a, it's a defragmentation of my life. It, you know, it's just an amazing synergy to be able to, to take a three hour hike or walk and also do three hours of, of, of necessary intellectual work while doing it. I mean, it's just an amazing use of the technology. How damaging do you think this
0: fragmentation of our lives by our devices is? I mean, is it it making us stupid?
1: Oh yeah. I think it's it's worse. I think it's making us stupid, but I I think it, it could be making us ungovernable. I mean, it could be Mm. the thing that destroys democracy. I mean, it's just, I just, I think so much of what we were discussing before, I mean, specifically the the uh, eruption of anti-Semitism and public protests after uh, October 7th, so much of that would I th- is a result of social media. I mean, it's is is the result of people reacting to what they see on social media, and it's the result of them reacting so that the reaction can be broadcast on social media. I mean, so much of this is performative. So much, I think, uh, mm-hmm. wouldn't exist, but for the fact that it, they, everyone can record it with their phones and upload it, and they just they they are feeding this machinery, and then being further provoked to feed it by the machinery itself. So it's, it's, it's there's a positive feedback loop here that I think is making it very difficult for us to have a, a sane politics. You know, the, the far left and the far right. I, I don't I don't see how you de-energize them in the in the presence of this technology, given the way everyone's using it. It's just it amplifies it amplifies the worst. Political instincts on the left and right uh, in a way that is, um, I think, increasingly destabilizing. What happens now? Do you think? What's? How do you see it all playing out? Back to the possibility of a pendulum swing, you know, backwards. Yeah. I, I do think that at some point we could recognize. That all of this has gone too far, and it's it's. Uh, I, I, th- I think the the presence of of artificial intelligence might facilitate this. I mean, I, so I think for, like you have to ask yourself, how are we going to respond when right? Like you you see a video of Joe Biden declaring war on Russia, right? And it looks perfect, and. Nobody knows what they're looking at anymore, right? We're all just wait. Like we 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 we've been misled enough up to that point that it, at a certain point we just decide, all right, we can never trust anything we see that's digital until the New York Times or somebody comes forward and says, uh, "Sorry, that, yeah, that one was fake." Uh, Joe Biden never said that. I think that would that could slow us down. It could it, it, we could step back and from the brink and just say, well. Strangely, now we need the old gatekeepers more than we ever needed them, right? And, and it's, it's not going to be the, the current digital anarchy where everyone is a journalist. You know, anyone who's got an iPhone is, is, is as good as the New York Times in delivering us reality. And gatekeeper? by gatekeepers, you mean New York Times? Yeah, or any institution that we can trust, hopefully, to vet digital information.
0: Yeah, well, as, as, as an owner of a newspaper that's going to turn... 200 years and three years time, it's very, mm-hmm. very, uh, very welcome words from you. Although they they do seem very, very optimistic.
1: I mean, maybe, maybe the trust will come from some other direction. Maybe it'll, this will be the kind of thing that'll just be, you know, built into the browser, right? Maybe this is, maybe this will be a technological, you know, a digital watermark on everything. I mean, whatever, whatever an institution like the New York Times would use to be absolutely sure that, that we're looking at actual video of the president of the United States really speaking uh, and not a deep fake. Um, maybe we maybe those tools get totally democratized and everyone has them built into their their phones and browsers from the beginning. I don't know. I mean that would probably be a, that would be a better solution, but I just think we're going to get to this point where it's it's going to get so noisy. I mean it's already you just I mean, just look at how deranged the behavior and and you know reputation of of Elon Musk has become, right? I mean, here's the, he's the owner of the platform. He's clearly addicted to it. He can't stop compulsively engaging with, with stuff that seems to be information that comes his way. He clearly has no idea who he's amplifying, right? You know, someone will tweet at him and he'll say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And then it would, it would it would have taken him five minutes to discover this person's a complete lunatic you know who's who's you know he's just look at he he clearly never looks at the timeline of the person he's signal boosting Dude, he's clearly a smart guy and if
0: someone like that's is, is unable to really use this in
1: in a sensible way then well it's not that he's unable it's i think that he's i mean what what we're seeing is sort of the dysregulation of his personality i mean he's he's got a very adolescent attitude toward it he's just you know he's he's having a lot of fun I think he's probably um being, you know, one of the richest and most powerful and most famous people on earth has, has made him somewhat immune to um, any concern about his reputation and what people think, or even the harm he causes in the world. I mean, the fact that he'll, you know, go after somebody on, on the platform and then that person's life will then be, you know, an, a kind of an endless series of 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 um, bad encounters with with Elon's... Uh, personality cult, you know they'll get doxxed and harassed, et cetera. I mean, all of that's very predictable, but it's not something that he seems to be thinking much about I ju- there's just something so irresponsible about all that, and so uh, obviously just not good for him personally i mean just when you look at how he's spending his time and look at how he's you know he's doing so many useful things and and yet it's um his reputation's getting so sullied by by his behavior how he's using these information tools i just think there's an object lesson there that many people will begin to to um draw the obvious conclusion from which is you don't want to be like that right i mean there's like if you're a ceo of a corporation you don't want to be like elon in that respect it's 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 amazing that he's been able to survive the, the, the level of indiscretion he's now culpable for and it's easy. To, it's just, I, I just think bad things, you know, a certain number of bad things will happen that might convince us all that we have just been, you know, basically driving drunk on a very dangerous road as a society individually and collectively, you know, we have to get our wits about us. We have to use these tools differently. Do, do you think there's, a, there's,
0: there's some kind of onus of responsibility that should be placed on people like him or other platform owners or even Apple and and the smartphone owners to to have some kind of duty of care for well it
1: might be in the limit it might be an insoluble problem I mean I'm not under any illusion that you can you can perfectly police what is being said on like you have a terms of service that is sane and responsible and encouraging of civility and and but given that there's you know, literally billions of pieces of content being put onto some of these platforms it would require absolutely perfect and omniscient artificial intelligence to effectively police it so there's always going to be the case where someone has done something appalling but if you're someone like Elon you can it's very be very easy to not participate in that madness the way he is right i mean he's 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 behaving unconscionably on x in my view um and you know if anyone could have performed an intervention on him they certainly should have you know, I'm aware of how thankless a job it is to you know, privately tell him he's doing the wrong thing. So uh, it's pretty much the end of the relationship. But I do think insofar as these platforms can optimize themselves for civility and sanity and, and against the spread of misinformation and disinformation and, and uh, noxious lies, I think they should do that. Uh, all the while knowing that they're always going to do it imperfectly. And, of course, they're also responsible
0: for creating a hugely polarized society. It's one of the interesting things about yourself is that you do have very, um, what most people out there, wrongly, I'd say, but consider contradictory opinions. So, you know, you might be critical of Black Lives Matter, but you'd also be critical of Donald Trump or, uh, you know, you have very strong views on religion and religion as a whole and Islam in particular, but then you are
1: very into spirituality and meditation. So do do, do you think this observation is correct? Yeah, well, part of what you're describing is just the the dumbing down of everything based on political identity, right? So Mm. so insofar as you're going to organize your life around politics, already that is a derangement of your ability to think clearly about ethics or, you know, scientific facts or anything else, you know, it's, if it's a matter of just, just scoring another point for your team, uh, whatever, you know, however bad faith that point is, well then that's, you know, that, that is antithetical to a real conversation about facts or values or anything else worth talking about. I mean, I think, I think politics for the most part is almost by definition a an opportunity cost for any for all of us. I mean like like, like most people we, the the fact that that so many of us are spending so much time thinking about politics is a very bad sign. Like when things are really going well, most people shouldn't have to think about politics much at all, right? It just it shouldn't be. It's like politics is just is the method by which we get things done, you know, we we get laws passed and we etc., but uh, the amount of bandwidth that is taking up for most of us most of the time now is just, it's, it's, you know, orders of magnitude beyond what it should be if things were really working well. There will be some future pandemic. So how should we respond? That should be a totally apolitical moment. It should just be a, an entirely pragmatic and scientific and sensible procedure. We should know how to make vaccines. We should know how to save lives. We should know how to to educate our children in the presence of you know the, the immediate needs. That, and but the fact that we could more or less guarantee that our society is going to be shattered by uh, po, you know opportunistically leveraged political misinformation uh, and partisanship and just a blizzard of lies in the face of the next pandemic, that's a sign of of uh, profound dysfunction. For some people, politics has become their new religion. That's intrinsically dysfunctional.
0: We, we started off by talking about whether the importance of it. You started talking about the importance of free speech. Do you think, considering that free speech really is stifled in so many parts of the world, including, sadly, my homeland, do you think there really is a problem with free expression and possibly
1: free thought in in the uh i english speaking world let's say again i would want to support the american commitment to it which is it's you basically you're always going to err on the side of permitting speech um so so if i if i could wave a magic wand and give everyone the first amendment that's what i would do but then conversely and this is yet, yet another one of those contradictions that people seem to find in in my work which is is not in fact a contradiction in my view i do think you know social media platforms should be able to do whatever they want unless we're going to nationalize them or globalize them and say that, okay, this, this is now necessary infrastructure. Maybe there's, there are arguments in favor of doing that at a certain point, or, or at least building a an alternative, you know, a, a, a true global digital town square. You know, it's hard to see how it wouldn't become just a, a giant version of 4chan or some other awful place, you know, it's some, some cesspool. But, you know, short of that, I think all these companies should be free to be as as restrictive as they want to be. Despite what Elon has said about his free speech absolutism, he's he, he's nothing of the sort, you know, given the kinds of things he's had to, you know, prescribe on on X. Uh, I mean, now he's just apparently disallowed the, the term decolonization, I think, and the phrase uh, from the river to the sea. Well, like, you can, like, literally, you can't use those. You're going to get banned from X if you use those in any context. Yeah, his own flirtation with antisemitism has... Has caused him to to overcorrect in that direction, um, so it just may not be workable. But I, I do think that it is not an infringement of anyone's right to free speech to be kicked off Twitter. I mean, I, I, no one has a right. No one has a political right in America or anywhere anywhere else, as far as I know, to be on Twitter. Right. I just think Twitter should be able to kick people off. If if, the, if Twitter wants to kick people with red hair off the platform. I think they should be able to do do that, and then they should be. Then we should all be able to boycott them for being stupid. But I do worry. You know, I I don't think your current laws in the UK, in insofar as I understand them, make a lot of sense. Although, conversely, it is tempting to use them. You know, I, I understand Douglas's impulse to to use them to prescribe support for a group like Hamas. Uh, I, unless something has
0: changed in legislation uh, uh, in, in the last decade, there were. Plenty, plenty of hate preachers. There was Abu Hamza, Abu Qatada. They couldn't kick them out for, for, for years and years. I think eventually they did. But So that that, that is a, a strange paradox with people being arrested if they may
1: talk about biological sex. In defense of Douglas's statements on this point, I do think he's drawing an analogy to some things you did with respect to ISIS supporters. Uh, I mean, maybe they had already gone. Maybe they were already over in Syria and Iraq, and then you just didn't let them back. Just a couple more questions before I let
0: you go. One is the forces of conservatism are undoubtedly on the rise around the world. And as a old-school liberal libertarian myself, I I find that worrying, and it's it's happening in America. It's happening in Russia. There was some talk of banning abortion in Russia that I read about last week. It's happening even closer to Britain. It's happening Hungary and Italy and Slovenia. And of course it's happening in many, many other places which traditionally have always been conservative. It is, in my view, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a response to the progressive left going into this uh, sphere of, uh, I hate using this term, but there isn't another term of woke and cancel culture. But I also feel, and I spoke about this in Parliament last week, that this movement, this this extreme progressive movement does set back progressive values in places like Russia or Middle East, India, where people look, governments look and use that as an example and point their finger and say, we don't want to be like that. So I, I want to... To, to know where you stand on that. Well, I
1: would agree. I, I I worry about that too. I think the, I think it matters what sort of example we set to, you know, developing democracies and and uh, you know and societies that just aspire to be developing democracies. I think it's if we are being driven insane by all of our freedom, and we can we can no longer just distinguish between men and women, and we will we'll uh you know jail people for pretending to be able to make such a distinction that's just so patently insane that it's hard for them to know what even to aspire to in that context obviously we, we want a certain quality of life ourselves we want sane societies and we want you know the political norms that that are are functional but we also want to set an example for the rest of the world so that we can we can solve this larger Coordination problem of just getting. How do we build a global confederation of of nation states that are that are you know effectively open that works right that that allow allows us to solve problems that can only be solved globally. I mean, how do we get global cooperation on important problems like climate change, say, or like you know nuclear proliferation or artificial intelligence or you take your existential concern you know an individual nation can't solve these problems and we need we need a, a a global civilization to cohere on some level and it matters that an authoritarian tyrant can point to the obvious dysfunction in a city like San Francisco and say you know it's look look how democracy is working out for these people right they can't even figure out how to you know keep you know fentanyl added uh homeless people off their sidewalks in front of their most expensive real estate right they can't figure out what to do with those people and they're going to tell us how to you know how to deal with our domestic problems in order to to occupy the moral high ground in any kind of civilizational dispute let's say that you know the treatment of women say there has to be a discernible moral high ground and you actually have to be standing on it right and and the fact that that is becoming unclear uh, because we're so confused, you know, that we have so-called feminists supporting Hamas, you know, quite literally, right? Literally a, a feminist organization like Code Pink, you know, taking the wrong side of what happened uh, on, on October 7th. That level of moral confusion is just not, it's, it's anti-inspirational, right? So who are we to say that the Taliban is, are, are treating their, their uh, women and girls unethically? It, come, it i think it does come back to social media and the amplification of, of noise i mean it's just it is a dyna- dynamic where a small percentage of activists can completely change the character of of the conversation online and make the the reputational costs that that normal people you know non-activist people have to pay intolerable Right, so you you literally have Twitter effectively becoming the editorial board of the New York Times, uh, and on the basis of what a tiny activist subculture is is able to do on that platform, they've outsourced their conscience to you know their their timeline on Twitter, and it becomes a again another positive feedback loop because it's because all the journalists are there, it becomes a thing that they think they need to respond to. I hope you're right and. In that there may be some kind of
0: change, some kind of sea change in, in in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I do hold that it's a strange thing to hope for, but I do hold that hope that there could be some crises that are that reveal how untenable our present course is, without it being just too disastrous for us. Again, like some, you know, some calamity born of deep fakes on social media. That gets us all to real, but basically we'll we'll all declare something like intellectual bankruptcy with respect to that, you know, information stream. But
0: it had, as you say, we don't want it to be too extreme. But how extreme no, that, no. must it be? I mean, you'd think people would learn a lot of lessons from COVID, yeah, including governments, yeah. and and it doesn't seem like that much has been learned. So
1: <laughs> no, no, I, yeah. I, I I do worry about that. I mean, I worry that COVID was just almost perfectly tuned to create the maximum amount of political fragmentation and the minimum amount of learning actionable lessons on that on basis, because it's, had it been more dangerous, had it been more deadly, I think it would have cut through a lot of the politics. We would have been, all, we, we would have recognized we're all on the same team, you know, both nationally and, and globally, and we would have developed better tools By which to respond uh, but obviously none of that happened i wanted to ask you how
0: you reconcile and maybe it doesn't need reconciling but i'll use that word anyway the, the not believing in god or in the higher being and spirituality
1: yeah there's no reconciliation required i mean you know for me spirituality relates to uh, the deepest principles of of psychological well being, and you know, we can talk about the human mind and and it, from the first person side in ways that are, you know, scientific and and rigorous. And so, um, I think spirituality and, and the contemplative life and and the way all of that relates to to ethical goodness and you know, all of that is is those are the most important questions. For any individual to ultimately grapple with, uh, and I think they they're of a piece with an emerging science of the mind. We are confused about the the ultimate nature of reality, right? So I'm I'm a kind of provisionally I'm I'm a physicalist in the sense that yeah I think I think brains and their and their states is um, you know, they're certainly an important part of of any discussion about the you know, conscious experience and the mind. But I don't know what I don't know how consciousness actually arises on the ba- on the basis of the physics of things, and if in fact it went all the way down into, you know, the the smallest constituents of matter, and it's actually not produced by information processing. Science is not science, and reason, in my view, are not in principle committed to physicalism. Hmm. Well, Sam,
0: Dr. Sam Harris, thank you very much for coming on. It was fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, a pleasure to talk to you as always and and best of luck with it.